and welcome to Reliving My Youth. My name is Noel Fogelman. My guest today is Kevin Godley. Now, Kevin done it all in the music business. He started off as the drummer in the band 10CC. They had the major hit, I'm Not In Love. And in 1977, him and his bandmate Lol left to form Godly and Cream. They released a ton of great albums, probably best remembered for their innovative video, Cry, which Michael Jackson used as inspiration for his black and white video. They directed music videos, directed Duran Duran's Girls on film, a couple police videos. After they broke up, Kevin continued directing music videos for Brian Adams, for Bono. The list goes on and on. We talk about his journey into doing that. And he is an author. He's working on movies. He's a super busy guy. And I hope you enjoy my conversation. So, Kevin, uh, your career spans so many different uh, points in the music industry, videos, directing, uh, the bands. Um, going way back, how, uh, how did you decide on playing the drums? Well, I was in a local band, a couple of local bands, and uh, for some reason I wanted to play guitar. But I was, wasn't very good, so I ended up on bass, and I was even worse on bass. <laughs> But my uh, next door neighbor always bought a drum kit for his birthday, a real nice premier white drum kit, bass drum, tom-tom, you know, the whole thing. And he was terrible. <laughs> he kind of joined our group and he couldn't play for shit. So um, I just one day sat down behind the, the kit and I had that kind of coordination thing. And uh, I just, I, you know, got rid of the bass and started playing drums. Bits and pieces of all sorts of hybrid kit at first, but uh, I, I enjoy being at the back rather than front. I enjoy being the engine room. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you kind of self uh, teach yourself to play the drums or, yeah? Yeah, well, I just listened to records. Right. And kind of figured out. I think I got thrown out of school or class once for making banging on my school desk, <laughs> trying to figure out a particular role. And uh, yeah, just by listening, just by listening to figuring out what, what and you know, and that, you, and that suddenly clicks and it does, you know. Yeah. What, what were some of the music you were listening to back then? Uh, what are we talking about now? Are we talking about early, sort of early 60s? God, I don't know, probably Elvis, probably Cliff Richard and the Shadows. Right. Which was our version of Elvis. But I was more interested in, in the Shadows, who were mm. kind of cool, whereas right. Cliff was kind of a bit wanky. <laughs> uh, sorry, Cliff. Yeah. Um, at the time, the Shadows were very, very cool. And so I was listening to their drummer, uh, Tony Meehan, quite a bit. Uh, I'm trying to figure out, you know, what... What makes what is important about a drums? Is it is it the fills? Is it the is it keeping tempo? Is it how much bass drum? How much snap? It's you know it's kind of a learning curve, and it just you know it's just I think most drummers from my generation figured it out right. without having drum lessons. You know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So a paradiddle I could not do. Right. I had a couple of people who actually were in Cliff Richard's backing band. Uh, on on my, on my show, and you know, he, he they both told me some you know great stories about 
Falcliffe and how they both got fired because he felt like that they were upstaging him. <laughs> well, they used to do these weird dance steps, right? Uh, whilst playing, except the drummer, obviously. Yeah. They used to do these very cool dance steps while they were playing the, you know, the three front guys. So that was pretty. That was pretty good for them. You know, yeah. it was pretty good. I remember one of the probably the key moment where things changed was everything was kind of boom, chat, boom, chat, boom, and then suddenly it's boom, chat, boom, chat, boom, chat. Yeah. That was hard. Right. Boom, boom was hard. Yeah. But like, is, is the drums like the one like instrument where you can kind of you know really I want to say screw up but like kind of miss something where people really wouldn't notice. Well, it depends how much you screw up. Right. <laughs> um, well, if you screw up, then you screw up everybody else, I guess. Right. Because your, your main job is to keep the tempo. Okay. So everyone can play. Right. So if you do fuck that up, you lose a beat or something, then everyone yeah. turns and looks well, at you yeah. and makes you feel pretty shitty. Right. Okay. Right. Now, you said like early 60s you know, influences, so I'm assuming that you were a Ringo Starr fan. Yeah, very yeah. much so. Yeah. How was how his playing like? Did you kind of mirror your playing to his? Not really. <laughs> I mean, I've only recently realized that he was really a left-handed okay. player, and he kind of switched, um, which probably gave him the originality. He was a, he's, a, he's a, an incredible player. I suppose the two main drummers I remember from that period were were Ringo Starr and Keith Moon. Right. Both different ends of the of the spectrum. Yeah. Keith was all flash and bombast, um, rolling all the time, but incredible yeah. power. Whereas Ringo was a bit more thoughtful and interesting in terms of how he developed right. over the years. Okay. Yeah. So how um how did you end up meeting Lol? We were, we were neighbors, we were kids. We were okay. friends since we were kids, pretty much. We, we went to art college together. Um, and then we split up. He went to Birmingham College of Art. I went to Stoke-on-Trent College of Art. But we, we kind of got together at weekends to come up with all sorts of world-dominating plans. <laughs> right. <laughs> when, yeah, when did you like realize that this might be something you'd want to pursue with him like professionally? When we, well, we left college, left art college together to drive to London to a recording session. So I kind of stepped out of one situation straight into another. And, at, you know, at that time, there was no sense that this was going to be a career. It was just, it was exciting stuff. But, you know, we were kids, we were 20, you yeah. know, so it was like, well, let's follow this and see where it goes. And it, you know, gradually it began to go somewhere. Yeah. Uh, so before we actually knew what we were doing, we <laughs> were doing it. You right. know what I mean? Yeah. But way before that, we were in local bands, traveling around in the back of shitty old vans full of chickens and same as everybody else. Right. Yeah. And, and doing crappy clubs. Right. And so on and so forth. Yeah. Did um, you know, traveling with those chickens, did you bring a lot of feathers on stage? <laughs> well, fortunately. Or unfortunately, the chickens had been evicted before we put our gear in, but oh, okay. it stank that I had them. Right. So you can say you played like chicken shit one night, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Yeah. I know why. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So back then, were you writing your own music with Lol? 
we were, we were beginning to. Okay. Yeah, we were experimenting with. And we were, you know, thinking back on what we wrote at the time. It wasn't that bad. Right. But it was very derivative because I think most most musicians, when they begin and they're young, they listen to the heroes and they, yeah. to a degree, begin to emulate them. Right. It takes a while for that to go through that phase. Yeah. But we were right in that phase. Right. Now, did you, um, meet, meeting the other guys from 10CC, was that like early on like that as well? Or how, how did that happen? That was, that was kind of later. We, we knew Graham. Graham was, a, was okay. a friend also from when we were kids. Right. And when we first started writing songs, he was way ahead of us. He'd already had a couple of hit records with the Yardbirds that he'd written. Right. So he was way ahead of us. But again, because we were neighbors, uh, he could see our our talent beginning to come out, yeah. our songwriting ability. So he invited us around to his place and, and used to record us on his uh, two-track Rebox, which is where we first, you know, learned a little bit about recording. So in a sense, he kind of produced us a bit okay. in very, very early days. Um, just, just to give us the sense of what the whole process was. Right. What did you think about his songwriting? Uh, great, really yeah. good. Um, I mean, what he did with the Yardbirds, For Your Love, was amazing. Uh, the right. whole tempo change thing. And great, I mean, fantastic. Way ahead of his time. Right. Do you think, I mean, because like your style with Lowell's compared to Graham and Eric's, I mean, they were pretty different. So you think it kind of like blended well for at least a little bit in the band? I think, it, well, it didn't, and that's because probably the reason why it did. Right. Because, I don't, I don't know, if you think of what makes a chemical reaction, <laughs> it's not always the things that you think are going to go together. Right. It was, it was, there, was, there was combustion. Yeah. <laughs> but we were coming out, we were coming out of an art school period. I've been in art college for like eight years. Yeah. And during that time, I bought into the whole thing about there was a, a tutor we had who made a significant change in how we thought. Uh, his name was Bill Clark, and uh, his whole thing was, was very kind of Brian Eno in a way. Okay. He used to, you know, you'd come into class and he'd say, well, how, how do you work? And you'd say, well, I like to draw in charcoal. He said, okay, well, I'm going to give you a brush. Okay, and uh, and I want you to stand on on one leg and be blindfolded. <laughs> oh, really, really. <laughs> the whole point in, in that approach was not so you could get the best out of the you that you knew. It was about yeah. to see what you what you could achieve that you didn't know you could do. Right. You know, sort of to put you off kilter, to put you in an unfamiliar situation and work with that and develop that. Mm -hmm. I was pretty crazy at the time, but I know exactly what he was trying to get at. In other words, push, push, right. push. Don't do what you know you could do. Go beyond that point. So, yeah. And that stuck with us both for, forever. Right. How long did it take for you to realize that? Uh, in terms of music? Yeah. Right away. Okay. Because we quickly realized that what everybody else was doing was, was great, but right. it kind of seemed pointless for us to be doing the same as everybody else, because mm -hmm. they probably would do it better anyway. Right. So let's 
what happens if you try this chord or if you change this to this? So we were always experimenting from the word go. Um, and I think that that's, there was always the pull and push uh, of those two elements within within the band. Right. One very, very accomplished and very polished in terms of structuring and performing, and two uh, very raw individuals, which is myself and Lol, who just wanted to try stuff. Right. And with, without actually knowing what the result would be. <laughs> that was the exciting part. Right, and you know, just a couple songs where I guess you contributed with Lol and you know, Graham and Eric, but first, Rubber Bullets.
definitely get to that in in, in a second um okay. yeah now the other one i guess with graham and eric wrote which i guess could be considered that you know the band's biggest or most recognizable song is i'm not in love yeah and it's yeah i guess it would be a far cry from what you and lol would would do but um how did how did that song come about and did you kind of enjoy it so to speak yeah yeah not immediately i mean that's probably a very, a very good example of how we work. Doesn't mean you mean 
time in the band Lowell's time in the band also was kind of coming to an end did you realize it was coming to an end when the song was out no that was way too early okay it was it was original soundtrack it was the next album where we began to realize right. that. okay um, I think what had happened there's a number of reasons why that happened prior to 10cc existing Law and I had invented this device called the gizmo, which was a, right. a thing you stuck on the bridge of your guitar and it, when you press buttons, it's, it played the strings of the guitar and made them sound like, like uh, cellos, violins, violins, etc. on a good day. Um, and we hadn't used it much, so we wanted to take a little time out before beginning the next record to experiment with it so we booked three weeks at strawberry studios and we 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 had a ball experiment with experimented with it and i don't know what happened but somehow we were we were having more fun doing this than we had than we'd had for a while recording with intense cc uh, and we did but we didn't know it until right, we yeah. tried this experiment so when it came time to to go back 
to uh, the office, as it were, mm-hmm. and, 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 and start the record, we would say we were reluctant. We just felt different. So, so, and so the material that was being offered up wasn't as attractive. And the whole process changed. If on all the other albums, there was never any, any thought process prior to recording. It was, but when we began the pre-production of How Day, which was the next album, right. we had a meeting. So, well, we need, you know, we need a long song. We need a couple of love songs. We need a couple of quirky ones, because by then we were we were quite successful. So there was there was a formula, if you like, what people expected of 10 CC. Mm-hmm. But that's and thinking back. It's probably the the right way to go about it. Well, we were young and reckless, right, yeah. me, and we we didn't get off on that way of thinking. So I started really sort of calculating, and I, you know, we've got to write one of those songs. We've got to write what two of them. It's like no, everything before then had been the you know what what happened, what was there by the end of the amount of time we'd given ourselves to record. That was it. Right. This this was different. So so something had changed, and we we weren't comfortable with this. So we wanted to carry on experimenting with the, with the initial thought that you know if we learned something, we could bring it back. So let's let's take a little break. But uh, it couldn't. We couldn't. The juggernaut was already on the road, you know, and nobody wanted to stop to let these two idiots have more time <laughs> in the studio to experiment. Right. Thank God we were medical students. Uh, <laughs> So we had to we had to make a decision essentially, and we were young, you know, why yeah. the hell not? <laughs> so we decided to go our own way. Yeah. And I guess that's the time to do it when you're young. Yeah, exactly. It's it, it, looking back, it seems a little, seems a little reckless now. But had <laughs> it, had we not have done that, we wouldn't have done all the other interesting things. That of course, we did yeah. from that point to right. the present day. So. Yeah. So you know, in many ways, it was it was a bizarre decision, but it was a good decision. Right, and then I guess that experimentation brought us consequences. Yeah. Yeah. Which, yeah. Yeah. Which I mean, it's a lightning rod, but you know, it's I, I enjoy it. You know, it's 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 definitely different, but it's um it sure is. yeah it sure is yeah it's a folly yeah. <laughs> What's your relationship with it now, and has it changed over the years? It has. I was very disappointed when it came out and was met with such derision. But, <laughs> right. But the timing was the timing was awful because yeah. it, we went into it and disappeared into the studio for about fourteen months or so, and emerged blinking into a different world. We were like, you know, sort of Japanese Japanese soldiers lost <laughs> in in the forest, right. not even knowing the war was over. You know, <laughs> and you know, punk and new wave had happened. The whole thing, the carpet had been ripped away from the whole rock and roll permanent. Yeah. And everything was kind of starting again, which was the complete opposite of what we were doing. So it just didn't fit. We were like, you know, we were the sort of audio version of Heaven's Gate. Right, yeah. And we, we suffered from that. Uh, and it was very disappointing. But. But there wasn't much we could do about it. We were two thirds of the way through, if not more, when everything began to change. So um, 
you know, we just kept on going. We didn't really have a choice. And therefore, we suffered from that. But, but And so we were kind of at sea for a while um, with this albatross <laughs> consequences. <laughs> but to answer your question, what do I think of it now? I think there's some amazing things on it. I think there's some real shit on it. Uh, and some stuff that partly worked and some stuff that didn't work at all. And, but I think there's some great stuff on it. It's just, I think it, it went too far. I think after a while, the tail was wagging the dog. Uh, and I think it shows in the finished thing. Nevertheless, it's, you know, it's, it, it was an experiment, but a grand experiment. And, and as, like many follies are, yeah. you know, architecturally, they're extraordinary, misshapen things, but there is only one of them, and it's unique. And I think that, that applies to, to consequences. Right. So then, you know, you followed it up with, with freeze frame. Now, did you kind no, of... With Al, L, I'm sorry, L, yeah. yeah, yeah so yeah. with L, did you kind of have to kind of rein it in a little bit, or were you still taking chances or not as much? We were taking different chances. Okay. What we did was we found a local studio, a 16-track studio, uh, very near to where Lol lived, actually. Mm -hmm. we, it was run by a, a, a chap called Nigel Gray, um, who built the studio. Nigel is no longer with us, sadly missed. But he recorded the the police, the police's first three albums, okay. produced them. So this place had a sound. It had a. It was. It was. It was very stripped down and very simple, but it had a sound and a vibe. So we began to work there, you know, it wasn't very expensive, we began to work there, just basically go back to basics uh, and, and learn all over again, hence the L, that's the, the album is like, is learner drivers where L plates in the UK, okay. that look exactly like the album colour, so that's, that's kind of what it was, we were learning our chops all over again, right, yeah, in this new world, right, <laughs> yeah, and I, I brought up, uh, freeze frame a little uh, prematurely because I just want to talk about Englishman in New York which not the Sting, yeah. not the Sting song this is two separate songs um, what was like your inspiration for that a trip to New York maybe <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah that's it
been there a number of times and you know a lot of our music a lot of the te- early Tennessee scene music is filled with Americana it's it's steeped in America mm-hmm. so to actually go there for the first time and be in New York City was was just overwhelming in a good way and you know we we sort of sucked it all in by osmosis and spat it all out in this track right and I think what you know made the song was the video and I, I, you guys didn't direct it, right? You were, you just starred in it, correct? Yeah, Ish. It, okay. Well, well, that was a pivotal moment because what actually happened is we weren't a band. We, you know, we weren't touring. We weren't right. doing anything other than sort of we were now kind of slipping under the radar making a record. So by the time we finished it, and this was going to be the single, the only way we could think of promoting it was to maybe, maybe do some kind of a short film. Right. Now, there was no music video business no. then. There was a few sort of late night TV programs that showed films if the band couldn't show up, mm-hmm. you know. But we, we couldn't think of anything else to do, so we did a some kind of short storyboard, keyframes of a storyboard, and took it to the record label to see if they'd allow us to um, pay, pay to make this film. And surprisingly, they said yes, but they wouldn't let us direct it. We okay. could only do it if we worked with someone who'd done film before, right? Which we did. Uh, Derek Burbage was his name. He, again, there's a connection with the police. He directed the, the police's first two or three videos. Uh, but during the shoot, it was like, you know, a couple of explosions went on in our minds. Wow. This is this is great. We could do with this what we did with music. Why can't we do this and right. do that? So we attended the edit once we'd actually done our bit on the screen yeah. performance. <laughs> we we went to the edit and once again another explosion. Wow, look what this does and look what that yeah. we were pressing buttons and you know, they had to shove us out and we kept coming back in yeah. again and yeah. doing this and pressing buttons and all. I mean, God bless uh, Derek. He was very accommodating. 
Um, but on that one music video, we learned everything that we needed to know. We learned that like music, there was equipment. Right. that if you fuck up it will do something different to what it was designed to do and you could make things happen <laughs> by doing this and making things happen by doing that in pictures and I suppose it was it was also the fact that we came from a visual background right. being art college students so it was kind of like returning going back to something that was in our blood it's in our DNA um, and so we can we kind of I suppose we did sort of, we directed the edit if you okay. like more than anything of that music video we did come up with a couple of ideas on the shoot as well but what happened from that point was it wasn't a hit in the UK but it was a hit in many European countries right. and Steve Strange who recently formed Visage that whole okay that whole movement, romantic movement, it was just coming into being. He just joined our record label and he wanted us to do his first video. So that was like our first professional commission. So being, you know, working on the edit of your video and now obviously having total control over it as well as kind of directing a uh, artist. Yeah. What was it for like the most difficult part of that first video? doing it for the money we were given, okay. which was fuck all. It was like, <laughs> it was, well, I suppose today's not too bad. It was 5,000 pounds. Okay. Most of that, the track was called Fade to Grey. Right. And most of that money went on, went to the makeup artist. <laughs> so what we did, what we shot had to be very, very simple. Okay. Um, so it was all challenging, but it was all a blast to do. Um, and I, Again, it's something that keeps cropping up throughout my career and, and probably lots and probably everybody's. Is the best things that you do are always when you don't really know quite what you're doing. Right. Because, I mean, Orson Welles said this, strangely enough. It's, it's a creative ignorance. Because once you know the rules, once you know what the camera is supposed to do and can't do, I mean, the editing equipment is supposed to do and can't do, right. you know the rules. But if you don't know the rules, you can't break them, if you know what I mean. If yeah. you just have an, an image in your head and, a, and something you want to create and go after it, then you're liable to come up with something that is interesting right. because you don't know what, you know. Yeah. You're doing it about what you're capable of as opposed to the technology. Right. Right. And now speaking of interesting, uh, one quick song. Uh, my favorite song by you guys is Snack Attack. It, yeah. I, I, as you're reading right now, so it's perfect timing. Um, seven minutes of just, you know, rattling off food and stuff like that. Well, how did you come up with that idea? Seeps through the floor. I can't eat no more. 
Then one better be as light as a feather so the doctors wide my jaws together and I'm locked in the bedroom away from the food so I lie on my back in the dark in the nude I can't eat no more. I gotta use a straw. But if the devil dragged me down to the kitchen I wouldn't put up a fight. I'd gladly sign away my soul for a T-bone steak tonight. Outfitter, my mother went crazy, they had to commit her. They used to tell me, don't be a quitter, but I know deep down I'm the runt of the litter. I can't eat no more. I gotta use a straw. But how do you take an overdose or even pretend to do it when the last straw is the one in your mouth and you can't suck sleepers through it? Open up the hatchback, I can eat a bubble car Or a pack of Mac, not a cake, not a cake Big Mac, 
Pictures of food I had on my wall And my treasured collection of menus They screwed up into a ball In front of my face they flicked it out of the window into the night But they'll never unscramble the combination They'll never get it right Now if they made a feature film that featured only food I'd wallow in the crowd scenes while the rest of the audience booed And if I got myself a video I could satisfy the need I could check out the action frame by frame And watch the calories of green But I can't eat no more I gotta use a straw I can't eat no more I can't eat no more I can't eat no more I gotta use a straw Feel like Bo Jack sitting in the Cadillac I gotta read, I gotta read a five jack stack A rack, a six pack jack Just call me Jack Kerouac Big black, open up the hatchback I could eat a bubble car or a pack of mac Not a cake, not a cake Um, I slipped a disc, slipped my disc. Okay. So I was, I was, I was bedbound for right. about six weeks. Oh wow. Um, interestingly enough, Nigel Gray was also his true profession was police doctor. He was the doctor for the constabulary as opposed to a band. Okay. <laughs> so I was laid up on muscle relaxants for for six weeks, and everything was painful. I could hardly move. Eating was painful. Right. Laughing was painful. So I just started writing stuff, stuff I'd really want to eat because I can't eat it. I can't go out to a restaurant. I can't do anything. Right. So I just started making a list of this stuff. And that was that was pretty much what Snack Attack was. By this time, I think we'd migrated from I'm sorry, Sound, to a studio in Law's house. We bought our, our own pile of equipment um, because we'd learned a lot about the process. So we figured we may be able to do it ourselves, so which we did. And he, he put a, a sort of rhythm track together. Yeah. So by the time I was well enough to actually go anywhere, it was to that new studio place. Right. And he had this track, I had these lyrics. So did uh, did Lowell like the uh, the lyrics to Snack Attack and the idea of the song? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It just it's never it's never really a matter of liking them. It's whether it works. Works right. And it just you know sometimes you just hit hit something and it works yeah. and you're off and running. Right. Okay. 
So now I'll just talk, obviously we mentioned a couple of videos before, but so like some of the videos you did in the 80s, I mean, even before MTV, there was Duran Duran's Girls on Film, which, I mean, if there, there's ever an 80s band was made for MTV was Duran Duran, and you yeah. basically were, you know, setting the bar before the network was even on. Yeah. Yeah. So was that um, surprising to you that that band took off the way it did? with all their videos, especially that one? No, because there, there was something in the air. When we began making videos, you, you, could, you could sense there was something going on. One really didn't know what it was, but which was why making them was so enjoyable. It was exciting. It, you know, people were taking notice of stuff. So something like MTV was, was kind of like perfect storm. Right. Um, for for this period, and Duran Duran very smart, and management very smart. They they'd noticed that that I think it was particularly in America there were clubs, right, that were playing videos, uh, and there was no censorship. There was no there was no people saying you can't do this, you can't do that. So essentially. Girls on Film was a, was made for that aesthetic. Uh, there were two cuts. The the main cut was the longer version, which was a bit more uh, raunchy, and, right. and the other cut was for TV. Should anyone ever want it <laughs> for TV, right? Which of course they did. Yeah. So, um, but I think it was they came out through the new romantic movement, which was kind of a. In a sense, it was the opposite to punk. Punk was very, very raw and street. Uh, New Romantics came out of the Blitz Club, and it was all about how you looked. Kids spending fortunes on clothes when they couldn't even afford, even afford it, but looking incredibly exotic. So the look of things was becoming a lot more important. Uh, so, and video was the perfect medium in order to, to translate that, that yeah. way of thinking. So again, it was a number of things coming together at the same time, like, you know, cultural changes happen. And some bright people at Viacom <laughs> thought, let's do this 24 hour uh, video station. And, you know, at the time it must have seemed the craziest thing ever, but as we all know, it, it, it certainly wasn't. Yeah. And what was great about it from our perspective, gave people like us, it was a sort of global art gallery yeah. for for music films. Right now, obviously, some other artists that you know frequented uh, MTV or, or the Police. You mentioned them before, and you you and Lal directed perhaps probably their two most recognizable videos, "Every Breath You Take" and "Wrapped Around Your Finger." Um, we'll start yeah. with "Wrapped Around Your Finger" because th that's a f beautiful video, sing just with all the candles. How'd you come up with that yeah. idea? It felt like that. It, you know, the, right. one of the things about the videos that we made as opposed to the videos that other people made, we avoided narrative. Okay. It seems, you know, show and tell, you don't need both. The song right. says it, you don't need yeah. to show it. So right. we were always after framing something as opposed to giving them the full picture. Yeah. Well, the first thing was it felt like it should be in slow motion. And it felt kind of spiritual, 
and dark and it felt like the video turned up I think we were probably the first people to do a film that was shot in slow motion and yet the vocals and performance are in real time and I think that's what really made that film work we it was very bizarre it's like a standard procedure now but uh, we were the first to do it and how we did it was we we filmed them at 50 frames per second but the but the, the track they were performing to was sped up twice the speed so it was quite a comical shoot because you know it's very you know the track is very yeah. swoony right and lyrical and you know like water and slow-mo but they you know that the track was like mickey mouse and they're <laughs> jumping around all over the place in reality right. so it was insane but they sting particularly rehearsed i think for a good few days mm. before and with the tape to to learn to lip sync at double speed <laughs> <laughs> so it's a real bitch to do right yeah. How is working with Sting? Great, they're all they're all fantastic. Yeah. They're, you know, a lot of preparation, uh, choosing the right wa- right wardrobe, getting right. the right art department in to deliver the candles and the candle stands. Uh, a hell of a, it was a big production, even though yeah. the, the the components were simple. Right. It was a, it was a big production with cranes and dollies and tracks and so on and so forth. Yeah. But it was a, it was. It was it was a great. We shot at the A and R stage in Los Angeles, okay. which was the uh, it was Charlie Chaplin's stage. Oh, okay, yeah. I know. But I was yeah, it was a great film. Right, must yeah. be good because the Muppets did a version of it. Yes, they did. <laughs> they did. Yeah, <laughs> made it last. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> I know. What about every breath you take? That was that was sort of synchronistic in a way. Right. Uh, it was very different to what they've been doing before and they wanted to do something that was different to everything else that was out there and again the song was quite dark yeah and we had a notion of, of doing something we've been looking at there were in the 1940s there were film jukeboxes in the states i don't know what they were called but they used to play jazz tracks and jazz films and it was all about you know black and white film cigarette smoke that whole yeah. smoky blue note jazz fine and that kind of felt like the kind of thing that should go with this piece of music right. and that, strange enough they were thinking along similar lines really so our thought process is matched and we storyboarded the whole thing with the window and the string players and and then again we shot at the A&R stage and, and, and we did it and it, it was I think what was different about it we lingered on shots for more than 10 seconds <laughs> which you know in the early days of video that's not something one did mm-hmm. you know you cut every like two seconds yeah at least. right <laughs> but we, we lingered we lingered okay. yeah and the only looks sting all only looks into the camera a couple of times He's always looking off oh. camera. Yeah. So I had a couple of interesting components to it, um, but it just captured the mood. Right. Yeah, and one video that obviously didn't stay on uh, 
frame for more than one or two seconds was everybody have fun tonight <laughs> the Wang Chung video well strange enough we'd used that technique before but failed miserably okay. I forget the name of the artist but we made the fatal error of not setting it against um, a constant background right we took an artist and took him to like I don't know 20 different locations and stood him in the middle of the frame and shot it so the everything was changing all the time and it was just too much yeah. but the technique was interesting and it was based on a um, piece of equipment there was a company called um i forgot what they were called not really important um, okay but they had a program the way you can program notes on a synthesizer they had a program for cutting between shots so it's based on using that. It's based on filming a number of different takes within the same camera setup, and then just editing between them. So that's all that's going on. People think it's animation. It's not. Right. It's like you know maybe twenty takes from the same locked off camera position. Um, it worked really well. Okay. Yeah, no, it, it did. It, it came out fantastic. And in, in one video, um, I know Peter Gabriel, you know, is famous for his video, Sledgehammer, Big Time. But uh, my favorite song of him is Duet with Kate Bush, Don't Give yeah. Up. And yeah, yeah, you, yeah, and you had basically a five minute, you know, locked off shot, an embrace for five minutes of the two of them. Um, was that your idea to do that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and it, it came out beautifully. And Peter, who was all for it, he loved the idea as well. Yeah. Yeah. They, I mean, unfortunately, the editing technology at the time wasn't wasn't great, so the eclipse that we yeah, had going right. behind them looked a bit looks a bit shit if you look at it now. Right, a little dated, but nice idea, but yeah, you know, and, but that's not really the important thing. The important right. thing was was what was going on between Kate and yeah. Peter, which and they they gave a great performance. Yeah, it's it's such a beautiful song. It it really is. Yeah. yeah. And probably, I mean, one of the most innovative videos was Herbie Hancock's Rocket. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> was, was, that, was that a bitch to do, that one? It's great fun. Yeah. No, it was lovely to do. Again, it was one of those things that we happened to be in the right place at the right time. We, right. I was watching some documentary on English TV, yeah. and they were, there was a five-minute segment in the program about this artist, Jim Whiting, showing off some of his hy hydraulic robots. And it was like, wow. And I have one of the old VCR, you know, yeah. video players. I recorded the last <laughs> five minutes of his thing. And I didn't know why, I just thought it was so cool. And not long after that, we got sent Rocket as a track to come up with an idea for a video. Right. And, you know, it's like, that sounds like this looks. Yeah. So back then there was no, there was no, okay, well, you know, we're getting, you need to send us a treatment and talk to us about the ad. No one knew what music video really was then. And particularly, you know, professional musicians, jazz musicians, it was a completely alien discipline. So they just let us do it, essentially, which is unheard of in today's world. Um, they said, okay, you got an idea. Yeah, we're going to do, do something interesting. Okay, we're going to fly Herbie over 
uh, and we filmed Herbie in our office in Chelsea. Right. And uh, just playing a set of Alcoda or whatever he was, he was playing, not 100% knowing how we were going to use the footage. But, um, and then the next day we were shooting the robots in a studio. But the, the whole interesting thing behind that video, part of the brief was to come up with an idea that would get a black artist on MTV. Okay. Because there were very, very few, if any. Right, besides Michael Jackson. Right. Yeah. So, it was like, okay, we've got to get him on there. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we put, him, we put him in the TV in the, the video. Yeah. In, the, uh, in, the, in the video. But it was like, when we'd done it, it was like, and it was a long edit. It was like yeah. we probably edited it for 24 hours straight. Right. But we couldn't, if you think about it, the technology wasn't there where you could, you could spool the tape backwards and forwards yeah. like vinyl. So we had all the footage which was done on film, 16 mil film, transferred backwards as well as forwards. Okay. So we were editing between forwards and backwards <laughs> with all this mad footage. And when when we finished, we thought, "What the fuck is this? They're gonna they're gonna kill us! <laughs> right? They're gonna fucking kill us!" <laughs> and we sent it off to them, and it was like Herbie didn't know what the hell he was looking at. <laughs> sort of thing. Right. Well, yeah. Well, the finished product came out beautifully, and it's you know one of the all time greatest videos. Um, and speaking of another all time greatest video, your your video for Cry which is uh, yeah. legendary. How did you come up with the, the, the idea of having the dissolve, you know, faces, the order of the faces, and like, are they all actors, people you know, how, how do they get involved?
singing the high note at the end? No, that, well, that <laughs> sped up in, right. in post, if you like. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that was Trevor Horn doing his bit. Okay. Yeah, you know, legendary producer, yeah. Uh, and a couple more, when you branched out on your own to direct a couple of videos, working with U2 a lot, um, I'm just going to talk about one in particular, working with Bono and Frank Sinatra. I got you wow. under my skin. I'm sure you have uh, some great stories for that one. <laughs> that was... That's a treasured, a treasured 
memory. That, yeah. that was extraordinary. We'd hooked up with a guy who knew, who was friendly with Frank. And we'd figured out that Frank isn't going to perform for a music video. Okay. I don't think he really knew what music video was. So what we'd done was we, we, we'd set up our cameras in a club in Palm Springs. Uh, and we'd hidden the tiny cameras, lipstick cameras, they call them, behind palm trees, behind decanters, behind wine glasses. Mm. And, and, and the idea was that, that Frank would be, uh, that Bono would be sitting at the bar, okay? And Frank would come in and Bono would have a bottle of very fine scotch that he would give to Frank and they would talk and we would capture what the fuck we could <laughs> at that moment. Um, uh, it didn't really work actually particularly well so we we changed it we had frank okay frank would frank would be there okay or he would arrive and sit down right and then bono would arrive and present him with the scotch and it, it was sort of fine but there was a fuck up because <laughs> we very carefully placed these cameras looking at a particular bar stool where Frank was going to be. So he shows up, pulls the bar stool two feet to his left and sits down. So on like 15 cameras, we get an elbow uh, top of his right. head. <laughs> a guy walking through carrying a pizza, it, you know, so and until that point, everything was relatively kind of hidden. But then I had to come out and introduce myself to, to Frank and tell him what was going on. And he he was pissed off. Right. You know, he said, what the hell is this shit? You know, <laughs> the album, um, the album of Duets was doing really well. Yeah. So why well, I don't know why do I have to do this crap? And left. <laughs> and we had like 30 seconds in the camp. So, um, we had to kind of make stuff up on the spot. We Bono went off to hang out with, with Frank, took and got some footage of them together in the limousine. We then shot Bono driving around uh, somewhere in, in the vicinity, and we ended up going into this kind of theme park with dinosaurs yeah. and stuff. Then we spent the morning in a studio writing on somebody's arm. <laughs> Um, basically, we were busking it. We, we were coming up with ideas because we didn't have a great deal. Um, so, on returning to England to edit this stuff, it was like, how are we going to make this work? Right. So, you know, sort of like a couple of days into the edit, it wasn't. It was okay, but it was lacking something. So, I had this epiphany that, that if we put two TV monitors next to each other and play this kind of stuff on one monitor, this kind of stuff on the other monitor at the same time. And I use one of those little lipstick cameras to film the whole thing going down, but using the same technique as we did for wrapped around your finger, play at double speed and film it so the whole thing is in slow motion. So that's what I did. So I spent most of the edit dancing between two TV monitors, which was ridiculous. But it looked, it looked amazing. 
and we were doing this at like three or four o'clock in the morning right. and and but it had it gave the thing character yeah. um so off it went to 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 Bono and you know he came back right away so it's fucking brilliant right. you're a genius and all all this wonderful stuff but Frank's people nothing not a not a word <laughs> so, so you know, what the fuck is someone going to show up and <laughs> tell us something right uh, but that eventually they did eventually they got back and they loved it um, so it was a huge sigh of relief. But what a what an amazing experience! A to meet Frank Sinatra and right. hang out with him for a little while. Went back to his compound. And oh wow! He served us drinks at his own bar. Right. And, you know, it's, it's yeah. just just unbelievable. He even sang to my wife <laughs> uh, when we went out for dinner. Right. It, it was just delightful. Right. Oh, that's that's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. A couple more artists. Um, you worked with Brian Adams a lot. Um, yeah, yeah, and one of my favorite songs is "Thought I Died and Gone to Heaven," which you directed yeah, that video. That was, of. that was a big one. It was a biggie. Yeah, yeah. What was the experience like doing that video? That was great. Yeah. I mean, the art, you know, full marks to the art director Jerry Jerry Judah for creating um, a field yes. <laughs> in the middle of a, of a large studio. And you might not notice, but there are trees at the back of the field. They're actually turning. The trees okay. are rotating right. very slowly. And also the um, the guy in post, the guys in post production who who rotoscoped like yeah. the sharks or whatever there was jumping through. Oh, the, yeah, those dolphins or whatever they were. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that was great fun, and all the different ideas. Tried a lot of things with, with Brian. Very yeah. lovely guy to work with, right. and great band too. So. That was great fun. Yeah, and then uh, one artist who's not really known in the U.S., but she's known worldwide is Katie Melilla. Katie Melilla, yeah. Yeah, which you know she, she's fantastic. Um, big been a fan of hers for a long time. But Nine Million yeah. Bicycles, that video, yeah. which it's a lot of fun. Um, how did how did you come up with the idea for that one? <sighs> I don't know. It's difficult to explain how you come up with an idea. Right. <laughs> It was just like, well, what happens? If, what would happen if you if you wanted to get one person from this place to another place without driving, cycling, or walking, but they just kind of slid along the floor? Right. And it was like, that could be interesting. But how how would you do it? So once you have the idea of the kind of, I think one of the things I always look for, I like I like movement an unusual ways of moving and to have someone sliding along the floor with no apparent uh, way of doing it right. was kind of intriguing to me and then the idea developed to, well maybe she can slide through different atmospheres and environments so in fact she's traveling in, in, in a strange way but it, it was quite it was very analog the way we ended up doing it. There was no post-production in it at all. A lot of people think that you know we shot plates, and we also shot her against green screen, and we put the thing. We we didn't. What we had was there were maybe three or four lanes of atmospheres on the floor in in the studio, and our camera was on a crane, looking straight down, with the lights on the crane right. and the dolly track 
to one side of each of these lanes of activity. And at one end of the studio, there was um, a kind of pulley system attached to a fiberglass mold of Katie's back that she lay in. Um, there was a cable running from that to the pulley system. And so there were guys at one of the studio pulling it smoothly across the floor in this in this sort of fiberglass thing. So she slid perfectly. Camera following it on a crane, keeping her in frame, sometimes dropping down, sometimes going back up. And that's essentially all it was. Uh, we just kind of mixed or cut between all the different atmospheres we'd set up. Uh, and then in post, occasionally where you, you could see the cable attached to the, the rig, we, we removed it post. Yeah, it came out great. It's a great song, great video, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So what are you working on now? <laughs> what am I working on now? I've never been busier. It's crazy. Right. I'm hoping to, I've written a, a screenplay that I'm hoping to shoot next year um, about Orson Welles. Okay. Uh, and the time he spent in Ireland, which has been a fascinating project for me. Um, I'm recording a solo album, which I've never done before. Right. Uh, <laughs> I'm involved in two musicals that I'm creating screen content for. Um, I'm joining uh, a company that, a media company that do video games, uh, VR and AR. Okay. That's areas that, that fascinate me, uh, and lots of other things too. It, it's just very—it's a very interesting phenomenon mm -hmm. that that I find myself busier than ever. Right. I, it's nuts, but I'm glad because it's what I enjoy doing. Yeah. Um, uh, uh -huh. I've written a book, but that was ages ago. That was a long time ago. But so lots of stuff, lots of good stuff. I'm currently in the middle of editing something. Mm -hmm. that I just shot last week for a, a, an Irish artist called Paul Horrigan. Um, so, I, you know, I'm enjoying mm -hmm. things. Things are really cool. That's awesome. I wish you nothing but the best of luck with all your projects, Kevin. And uh, yeah, you. yeah, when you get some stuff done, I'd love to talk to you again. Sure. <laughs> Absolutely. And a special thanks to Kevin for joining me today. Go check out his website, kevin-godly.com. You don't have to spell the hyphen. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at the first Noel 19 Be sure to like the page Living My Youth on Facebook. And if you have guest ideas, hit me up on there. Go to iTunes, leave me a review. Check out all the past episodes we've had, and you can subscribe to the show. Don't have iTunes? Not a problem. The show can be found on SoundCloud, also on Podbean. Holidays are right around the corner. It's Black Friday this Friday. Go to livingmyyouth.threadless.com for the merchandise. They all make great gifts. A new episode comes out every Wednesday, and we'll see you next week.